Dr. Jonathan Kohli works in the Department of Sociology at Oklahoma State University. His research focuses on social movements, politics, religion, education, sexuality, and race. Dr. Kohli has provided extensive editorial service to the discipline, including through past work as an editorial associate of American Sociological Review and as a book review editor of Work and Occupations. He is currently serving as a deputy editor at the Sociological Quarterly. In this episode, we speak about his first book, Beyond God's Campus, Mobilizing for LGBT Equality at Christian Colleges and Universities. This book was published by the University of North Carolina Press and also received the 2018 Distinguished Book Award from the Mid-South Sociological Association. He has also published his research in journals such as Social Forces, Sociological Forum, Mobilization, Social Movement Studies, and the Sociology of Religion. All right then, Jonathan. So thank you so much for coming um, on the interview today. It's a pleasure to have you here. I think I'd just like to start by knowing a little bit about yourself, about your background, and about your interest in sociology as, as an area of study, and potentially even why you've chosen to look at Christian colleges and the LGBTQ community um, as a specific area of your research. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me and inviting me to this uh, podcast. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So I, from the Southern United States, a very conservative religious part of the country. When I was 18, I went off to college to Samford University, a Baptist university, fairly conservative Baptist university in Birmingham, Alabama, to study political science. So I was a political science major, very interested in, you know, uh, political science as an area of study because it allowed, because I was really interested in you know, policy debates that were going on in the country, different policy debates ranging from how to address poverty to racism to criminal justice issues to um, LGBTQ issues and so on. But um, I began to kind of discover and gravitate towards sociology later in my undergraduate career because I found that the discipline allowed me to take deeper dives into the substantive issues that I was really curious about. Like in political science, I learned a lot about why people voted the way they did, or why Congress people cast their votes for certain pieces of legislation rather than others, questions like that. Whereas in sociology, I learned a lot more about some of the reasons for the social problems in our country that politicians are trying to address, if that makes sense. So that's kind of what, what started to draw me to sociology initially. But while I was at Stanford University, to get more into the reasons for my, you know, substantive issues and interest in sociology, LGBTQ issues within uh, Christian and religious communities, I worked with a few other faculty members and, and students um, at Stanford University to start the school's uh, first uh, LGBTQ student group, GSA. And I started up my senior year. It was not an officially recognized uh, student organization. Rather, um, we started it up as a subcommittee of an existing organization on campus, the School Sociology Club. It allowed us to immediately kind of hit the ground running, creating events on campus, bringing in speakers, and, and more importantly, creating a safe space for 
LGBTQ students on campus uh, and their allies who felt kind of alienated and isolated due to the conservative religious nature of the university. So, th so that occurred kind of late in my college career. And, um, you know, I ended up going into sociology uh, for graduate school at, at Vanderbilt University. And I decided to study kind of as a, an area of research, LGBTQ student groups at Christian colleges and universities, which is obviously kind of based on my experiences that I'd had at Sanford. Definitely, yeah. You know, I think something that's quite interesting that you mentioned, right, is that you started out as a political science student and then you decided to make the switch to sociology. Uh, so can you maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, whether there are any overlaps in these two fields and whether you feel like your background in political sciences has sort of helped you in any ways moving to sociology? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things I like about sociology, uh, in addition to what I just mentioned about kind of being able to take deep dives into studying the reasons behind, you know, why there are social problems in my country, in the United States, and you know, certainly social problems around the world. Um, one of the other things I like about sociology is that it's a, a diverse discipline in terms of the topics you can study, in terms of the methods you can employ to study those topics. In sociology, I actually can study politics. A few studies about, um, you know, um, voting behavior in legislatures. So I can actually do some of the research that I did in political science, but I can also really study any other topic about society, even if it's not directly related to the, the policy and political process. So to me, it's just kind of an exciting, intellectually exciting and invigorating process. But, but certainly I think my um, political science research, political science background kind of informed the work that I do in, in sociology. Even the you know book study on LGBTQ issues at Christian colleges and universities, that book takes a social movements perspective to understand how how and why students mobilize to create change on Christian college university campuses. You know, that book um, and it's kind of social moments perspective has a lot in common with, is informed by some of the things I learned about political mobilization and political science. So. Right, a very big advantage of, of a lot of the research you've done is also the lived experience, right? Because, you know, you've mentioned that you've had student community as well. So I think along those lines, I'd like to know a little bit about the attitude of these colleges towards queer students and a lot of the policies that they've had over like the, like the course, like history. Yeah, great question. So uh, in the United States uh, today, there are nearly uh, 2,000 colleges and universities that offer at least bachelor's degree or higher. There are around 2,000 four-year not-for-profit colleges and universities in the United States. And of those, nearly 700 are Christian affiliated, uh, which means that they are formally associated with, could be the Roman Catholic Church, but it could also be a variety of different Protestant denominations in the United States, from um, the Southern Baptist Convention to the Assemblies of God to the United Methodist Church. And there are a lot of Christian colleges and universities that are non-denominational as well that have an identity as Christian universities, although they're not formally affiliated necessarily with a particular denomination or, or religious group. So um, basically there are a big chunk of the overall population of U.S. colleges and universities that are Christian identifying. And historically, you know, LGBTQ issues have been controversial uh, within Christianity. 
beginning in you know the 1950s and 1960s, there began to be a lot of LGBTQ mobilization in the United States. Uh, beginning really in the 1980s, you saw a couple denominations like the United Church of Christ, the Episcopal Church, begin to open their doors to LGBTQ people to um, accept them as members. Um, and really, kind of into the late 2000s and early 2010s is when you saw uh, kind of um, several denominations in a row, like the Presbyterian Church USA, the Disciples of Christ, like the Evangelical Lutheran Church, um, begin to officiate same-sex weddings in addition to simply allowing LGBTQ people to to join as members. Um, So, you know, there are uh, kind of a a wide range of denominations, again, that Christian colleges and universities um, are are affiliated with. And those Christian colleges and universities that are affiliated with denominations um, that have opened their doors to LGBTQ people are, as you might expect um, pretty tolerant of LGBTQ students. They tend to have non-discrimination policies inclusive of sexual orientation. They tend to have LGBTQ student groups. And in fact, I built a database, again, of all the Christian colleges and universities in the United States. And I found that a slight majority of Christian colleges and universities overall, 55% have non-discrimination policies inclusive of sexual orientation. Uh, Just under half, 45% have officially recognized LGBTQ student groups. Uh, but then on the flip side, you still have a lot of denominations in the United States that are much more conservative, um, that believe that same-sex relationships are sinful, that don't typically allow um, LGBTQ people who are out and open about their identities to be members of their, uh, their churches. Christian colleges and universities that are associated with those kinds of denominations, like the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, like the Assemblies of God. Um, they tend to have um, actually bans on so-called homosexual acts or homosexual behavior in their student handbooks. So over 30% of all Christian colleges and universities actually have bans on uh, same-sex relationships. Um, They bar LGBTQ people from campus, and um, they're allowed to do so currently by the U.S. government. So hopefully that answers your question. There's kind of a a wide range of policies toward LGBTQ students. Maybe a slight majority do allow students to be out in LGBTQ, but there's still a significant uh, minority of of schools that bar LGBTQ students from campus. Certainly, yeah. It's extremely important that colleges take the step towards building an inclusive sort of community, you know, because I think once they have um, you know, that sort of a community, then students can really thrive and grow and live their identities and lives the way they want to, right? You know, I think something else that comes up is that um, a lot of students have started forming and joining activist groups, as you had mentioned. So I'm a little curious to know as to how these activist groups came into being and like what the culture of the colleges, you know, that like it allows the growth of such activist groups and how exactly, you know, like they came into being. If Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, so kind of even to back up a little more, um, you know, I get the question a lot of why students would actually attend Christian colleges and universities, why LGBTQ students in particular would actually attend Christian colleges and universities. Uh, And there are a variety of answers and explanations to that. One is that many um, LGBTQ people are Christians, are religious themselves, and they seek to get a college degree to try to earn a bachelor's degree um, at the same time as maybe they uh, grow spiritually or grow in their faith while in college. 
Um, but a lot of other uh, LGBTQ students go to Christian colleges and universities uh, for some of the same kind of mundane reasons that heterosexual or straight students would. Um, so maybe it's the best college they got into. Uh, maybe it's like a highly regarded academically oriented college or university. Maybe it's the college or university that gave them the most money, the most scholarship money. Uh, maybe the school is kind of close to home and they want to be close to home. Maybe the school is in a big city and they want to uh, be in a really large urban city with a large LGBTQ population. Um, and uh, so to kind of get to the question of why students would um, join or form LGBTQ groups, uh, when students come into college or university with really strong religious faith-based identities, you know, some of those kinds of students are looking to try to sort out their beliefs about um, religion and LGBTQ rights. Some of those students are maybe even uncertain about whether they should be LGBTQ um, or about whether same-sex relationships are, are moral. And so they kind of seek out LGBTQ groups just to kind of meet others like themselves and to try to unpack those questions about the intersection of faith and, and sexuality. Um, but for the students who came to Christian College or University because, you know, um, they wanted to be in a great city. They, you know, thought the school would be a great place to, to earn a certain degree. It was highly regarded academically. Uh, for those students who might not have been particularly drawn by the school's religious identity, um, they're often joining the group to try to um, maybe challenge, uh, try some exclusionary policy at the school. Maybe they want to put on protests or put on uh, some kind of uh, event to inform the school to try to educate the larger community about LGBTQ issues. Whereas kind of the former group I talked about join LGBTQ groups, maybe because of their religious identities and wanting to unpack questions about religion, uh, just, just trying to kind of educate their, their peers. And, and of course, just to, to meet others like themselves, other LGBTQ people uh, like themselves, gain friends on campus, maybe, maybe find romantic partners. You know, the, the reasons why students join LGBTQ groups kind of run the gamut. Definitely, yeah. A point I'd like to sort of pick up on, right, is that you mentioned that there's this really, you know, interesting intersection between their faith and their sexuality. And in that sense, I think that in a lot of ways, being a person from the LGBTQ community can a lot of times maybe conflict with, you know, a lot of their beliefs around, you know, like their faith and, you know, what Christianity has, you know, like taught them, right? And I think I'd like to sort of tie this into the title of your publication itself, which is Gay on God's Campus. So can you maybe speak a little bit about what exactly God's campus is and why, you know, like you've chosen this as like the title of your book? So you're curious, like why I titled the book Gay on God's Campus? I thought it was a catchy title. <laughs> Had some alliteration. Uh, and, and, you know, it drew, it drew uh, people to the subject matter immediately. It, it kind of informed people that it would be about LGBTQ people who were on a... Um, on a religious campus and my particular interest is Christian colleges and universities. Um, but maybe what people are surprised to find when they open the cover uh, and read the book is again, it, you know, there, there is some 
content in the book that's kind of about the experience of being LGBTQ uh, on a Christian campus. Um, but it, the book also talks a lot about uh, these questions about why people join LGBTQ groups, why they create change on campus, how the groups themselves, LGBTQ groups themselves, shape students, um, both while they're in college and even after they graduate. It really unpacks a lot of these questions about mobilization and social movement um, uh, processes that maybe the, the title gay on God's campus may not immediately tip people off about. Sure, sure, definitely. So something else I'd like to know a little bit more about is, right, that, you know, I think on one hand, of course, you have the policies that, that a lot of like these colleges and universities have. And on the other hand, you have, you know, the groundwork sort of stuff that is happening with the activist groups. So is there any such way in which a lot of the bottom up activities that you see from the uh, from the activist groups can in any way um, affect a lot of the policies that the colleges and universities already have? Yeah, yeah no, that's a great question. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that there are um, kind of a variety of forms of LGBTQ groups. So we talked a little bit about the different reasons why students go to Christian colleges and universities and then join LGBTQ groups at the schools. But there are also different forms of LGBTQ groups on Christian college and university campuses. Um, one type of group is what I call the direct action group. And direct action groups resemble what people often think about um, when they think about a social movement kind of organization or an activist organization. These groups put their bodies on the line uh, in, in actually a pretty literal sense and uh, in, in a pretty explicit sense. Um, members will go out and uh, hold rallies outside an administrative office. They'll do sit-ins in an administrative office where they actually go into a dean's office or a president's office and will sit down until the president agrees to talk with them. Um, they will do uh, just different kind of walks around campus to, to try to draw attention uh, to the plight of LGBTQ students on, on campus. They'll do media availabilities, they'll talk to the media, they'll try to get the word out about discriminatory treatment at a Christian college or university. So direct action groups tend to use just different kinds of sometimes in-your-face protest tactics to try to challenge administrators to change school policies uh, to LGBTQ students. I actually saw a direct action group in action. Uh, when, I, when I went to graduate school at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, there was another school in Nashville called Belmont University that had historically been a Baptist university uh, up until 2009. The school had a ban on homosexual acts or homosexual behavior in the student handbook. And in 2010, a lesbian soccer coach who had just come out to her soccer team as a lesbian was immediately departed the school. And students perceived her to have been fired, to have been dismissed by the administration. And after that happened, students kind of immediately mobilized in just the ways I, I, I just told you about. They had outside rallies, they had sit-ins, they had a prayer walk around campus, they had media availabilities. Uh, and within the span of one week, the school went from, you know, having just fired, uh, seemingly fired a lesbian soccer coach uh, to announcing that the school would actually add sexual orientation to their non-discrimination policy and that they would approve an LGBTQ student group that it had previously denied official recognition status to. 
So I saw with my own eyes, I was at those protests. I talked to a lot of students involved in the protests, the kind of direct action group deploying protest tactics to create change at their, at their school. And I, and I saw how they could succeed. Um, it, it's a really interesting story that I'm happy to talk more about as well, but um, not all LGBTQ groups uh, take that form. Direct action is maybe an effective way to get the public's attention about discriminatory issues going on on a campus to create change in that way. But other LGBTQ student groups, uh, maybe they're more interested in, in changing the hearts and minds of people on campus. So maybe the school even has sexual orientation and maybe gender identity in their non-discrimination policies already. But maybe the campus culture, the campus climate for LGBTQ students is, is chilly or exclusionary. Maybe LGBTQ people feel unwelcome on campus. So some LGBTQ groups take a kind of an educational group form where they're, they're putting on movie showings or they're bringing in outside speakers to talk about LGBTQ issues. So they're putting on uh, what are called safe zone trainings where students and faculty and staff and administrators are invited to come to a one or two day long uh, kind of workshop to learn about LGBTQ issues and how to be a better ally. A lot of LGBTQ students join educational groups to try to educate people about LGBTQ issues and to change people's hearts and minds. And then other LGBTQ groups just take the form of uh, what you often hear called affinity groups that simply try to bring LGBTQ people together within a safe space um, so that LGBTQ people on campus can can meet others like themselves and feel supported kind of in their life journeys. Those, those groups are maybe really more oriented toward creating change among their members and to help their LGBTQ people themselves kind of be the best, most authentic versions of themselves. Right, certainly, yeah. Um, you know, I just think I'd like to backtrack a bit, right? And um, to sort of go to the politics of it, you know, I think you have two broad strands, you know, you have the liberals and you have the conservatives. And from what I understand, you know, being anti-LGBTQ is more of, you know, like a conservative stance, right? So can you tell us a little bit sure. about, you know, where these ideas come, like in the Bible and, you know, how they've changed and evolved over time and, you know, and like what their ideas and perceptions um, have been? That's a really good question. So, you know, the term homosexuality or just the concept of homosexuality or, or same-sex orientation, the idea that people kind of have stable, enduring orientation, sexual and romantic attractions to someone of the, the same sex or gender, that idea really didn't come about until, you know, the 1800s. And it wasn't until uh, the 1900s, I believe, um, there's actually a book by Heather White called Reforming Sodom that, that talks about what I'm about to tell you. It wasn't really until the, the 20th century, the 1900s, that the word homosexuality itself entered uh, the Bible, appeared in the Bible for the first time. You know, the word homosexuality was inserted in place of what had previously um, been talked about as um, sometimes sexually immoral people or the word pervert used to be in the Bible. Uh, and when you go back to the Greek, uh, the Greek uh, words in, in the Bible were sometimes talking about, um, again, just maybe generally sexually immoral people, uh, you know, and people could talk about what that meant, but they often talked about like um, actually adults who had sexual relationships with children, like a very different kind of relationship. And they were, the verses were condemning that. 
And so it really, again, it wasn't until the 1900s um, that the word homosexuality suddenly entered the Bible uh, and replaced language that before had not clearly at all been talking about lesbian, gay, bisexual people. It wasn't really until the 1900s uh, and even in the 1950s, 1960s, that you saw a lot of churches begin to talk about what they called homosexuality at the time. And that had to do not only with the introduction of the word homosexuality into the Bible, but it had to do with the social movements that were mobilizing across the country in the 1950s and 1960s. There were Black people mobilizing for civil rights to try to get voting rights, to try to have states ban and have the country ban discrimination against people on the basis of their race or ethnicity. It was in the 1950s, especially 1960s and 1970s, that you saw a feminist movement emerge in the United States to try to liberalize abortion laws, to try to create space for women to work outside the home and have full-time careers. Uh, you had the LGBTQ uh, movement that at, in the 1950s was called the file movement, H-O-M-O. And then what eventually became called the gay liberation movement and then the gay and lesbian movement and then LGBT and LGBTQ movement as the years went on. It was in the context of these social movements mobilizing in the country that threatened the power to begin speaking out homosexuality and often in the same breath speaking out against, you know, black civil rights or uh, women's rights and so on. So that's really the context you have to understand. That's, that's the history of how the, the word homosexuality entered the Bible. And that's the context uh, against which you saw a lot of Christian preachers begin speaking out about um, LGBTQ issues, uh, transgender and gender identity and gender expression issues. You know, that's really kind of a, a recent um, what you might call obsession on the part of a lot of Christian churches, maybe around the last 10, 15 years, is when you, you suddenly saw a lot of churches forming doctrines and theologies saying that there are two sexes, male and female, that have these very particular uh, cohesive identities of women and men, and they don't really recognize gender diversity outside that, that binary. Although that kind of discriminatory exclusionary voice has probably been most dominant, you could say, in the United States among Christian. You always have had some social justice-oriented Christian ministers in the United States. In fact, in the 1960s in San Francisco, some of the very first organizations that had the word homosexual in the title and that were pro LGBTQ rights were Christian-oriented organizations formed by ministers from Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian denominations. Um, as we've already talked about, you know, in, in the 1980s, there were denominations beginning to open their doors to LGBTQ members, and, and there are quite a few denominations now that officiate same-sex weddings. So there are, what, to go back to your original question, some conservative and liberal divides within Christianity on the issue of LGBTQ rights. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting, right? I think something else to sort of keep in mind, right, is that even, like, to be able to self-identify, I think even that by itself is, you know, like a pretty big thing because, you know, coming from a place where being a homosexual person was not known to be a thing, right? I think to now know that, you know, this is my identity and to actually have, you know, like these resources and these people, I think, you know, that's, that's a pretty big thing. Um, so I think along those lines, I'd like to know a little bit as to, you know, what exactly were the experiences of the early, you know, sort of, you know, like LGBT, a lot of, you know, 
of like these students on campus, right? You know, like where like they did not have these networks or like these resources um, to go to. Yeah, it's a great question. And you're absolutely right, you know, um, since the concept of a, you know, stable sexual orientation to someone of the same or different sex is, is kind of a recent concept, it really hasn't been until the past few decades that you have seen more and more people beginning to openly identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. Um, there was a, a recent study, a recent report just this year by an organization called the Religious Exemptions Accountability Project that um, surveyed students at Christian colleges and universities. And they found that more than one in 10 students at Christian colleges and universities self-identify as LGBTQ. And if you also include kind of in that percentage people who are attracted to someone of the same sex, but maybe they don't identify as LGBTQ, you're looking at more than 20% of Christian college and university students. Mm -hmm. And if you include in that percentage people who might have um, had a sexual relationship or sexual encounter with someone of the same sex in the past, that number jumps up to about 30%. And this actually kind of reflects nationwide trends in LGBTQ identification. There was a recent Gallup poll uh, among the United States uh, young adults, college age young adults, uh, that found that 16% or so of uh, people in the college age range self-identify as LGBTQ. So this is a kind of a much bigger chunk of the population than a lot of people kind of used to believe. The numbers used to be a lot more because it used to be a lot more taboo to identify as gay, for example. Um, but there has been a rise in LGBTQ identification. But um, yeah, especially kind of before there was same-sex marriage legalized and before, you know, attitudes in the country had really shifted. Christian colleges and universities could be a very isolating place um, for LGBTQ students. Uh, I, you know, in my book, I, I interviewed students at four Christian colleges and universities, Belmont University in Nashville, um, which I talked to you a bit about before, uh, Goshen College and Mennonite College in Goshen, Indiana. Um, Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and Loyola University of Chicago in Illinois. And I, and I heard just some kind of really sad stories from LGBTQ students um, at these schools. For example, at Goshen College, the LGBTQ group there was actually formed because there was a train track, a set of train tracks that ran through campus, and someone drew the body of a person with spray paint over the train tracks and uh, wrote some offensive words that basically indicated that, um, you know, the person who drew this body over train tracks wanted gay people on campus dead. It was kind of a violent threat against members of the LGBTQ community. Around the same time, there, there had been this bulletin board on campus, a physical bulletin board where people would post posters uh, and there were some LGBTQ themed posters on that bulletin board. Someone set it on fire. So, you know, at a lot of schools actually like Goshen College, the LGBTQ groups there were actually founded because of acts of hate, acts of violence. Uh, at Belmont University, that, that school in, in um, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, they used to be uh, affiliated with the Tennessee Baptist Convention. Um, the school, um, I heard, uh, used to refer people to LGBTQ students to reparative therapy. 
they would refer them to counselors who would try to change the student's sexual orientation through methods that are not recognized as, as sound or safe by you know, the American Psychological Association, for example. Um, I talked to a student at Catholic University in Washington, DC, whose tires were slashed and had offensive words spray painted on, on his car um, because he was gay. So I, I, I just heard so many stories of bullying, of hate, acts of, acts of violence, um, about you know, reparative therapy uh, on these Christian colleges and university campuses. And, and that, that's part of the backdrop and reasons for why students would you know, sometimes start mobilizing to try to form an LGBTQ group on these campuses. Absolutely, yeah, I think in light of, you know, such violences and, you know, I think um, a lot of people also speak of microaggressions, right, which is that, you know, it's not like an overtly sort of uh, action, but, you know, just like the way in which someone talks to you just sort of creates this whole culture of not feeling good, right? I you know, I think, um, like, along those lines, my next question, um, you know, would be that, um, you know, like over the course of your research, have you noticed that there's a role that parents and teachers and such other stakeholders have to play in supporting LGBTQ students? And how do you think that has uh, played out? Yeah. Um, you know, employees at Christian colleges and universities play a major role in students' life, just you know, generally um, at a college or university. And, um, you know, I did hear a lot of stories again um, through my research of students who were the target of just unwelcome or denigrating comments by faculty on campus. Um, I talked to a student at Catholic University whose professor told her that after she had come out as a lesbian to him that, you know, she should just settle down and marry a man and she would learn to love him. Um, Stories like that are unfortunately pretty common at a, at a lot of conservative Christian colleges and universities, but um, most Christian colleges and universities do have, even the most conservative ones, have some allies on campus, some faculty and staff who don't share the discriminatory viewpoints sometimes of the school's trustees or, or top leaders. They play major roles in doing things as simple as kind of opening up their office door and allowing a student to come in and talk about their struggles being an LGBTQ person on campus. Um, to go back to my own experience at Stanford University in, in Birmingham, Alabama, um, there were a couple of very brave sociology faculty members who I actually dedicated my book to mm -hmm. who agreed to you know, advise an LGBTQ student group on campus. One of the faculty members was not tenured at the time. It was a very kind of bold thing for her to do. And honestly, you know, again, partly inspired my journey into to sociology. So faculty and staff, you know, are often the advisors to these um, groups that are seeking approval and they're kind of sticking their, their necks out in important ways. You know, a lot of these groups, when they seek approval, um, they, they need student government approval, but they often often need uh, faculty approval. There will be a vote of the entire faculty, um, and if, you know, there are plenty of stories of faculties, faculties across the country having a vote and saying they disagree with some of the current policies at the school. They want to see an LGBTQ group uh, at the school. So, 
hopefully that answers your question. There are a variety of kind of important roles that, that stakeholders, employees of the school play in supporting LGBTQ student groups and making LGBTQ students feel welcome on, on these campuses. Yeah. Yeah, then I think, you know, I'd just like to know a little bit about, um, as you've already spoken about, I think your general interest in this topic. And, you know, and if you specifically feel like your own background or um, identity or experiences has influenced the course of your research and your reasons for your interest in this topic in any way, if, if you're comfortable with sharing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, again, kind of my own experiences at a, as a, a gay man at a Christian college university, absolutely um, shaped my interest in the topic. You know, one other story I'll, I'll tell you about is I, I went to Sanford University, this Baptist university in, in Alabama from 2006 to 2010. And in my freshman year in the spring of 2007, there was this national LGBTQ group called Soul Force that was going on what they called a quality rides, a bus tour to different Christian colleges and universities across the country that had discriminatory policies toward LGBTQ students. They would go to a campus, they would march on the campus, they didn't ask for permission, you know, they didn't ask for an invite, they just came on the campus. On some campuses, they were arrested. Uh, other campuses like mine, Stanford University in the spring of 2007, allowed them to come on to campus. They held town halls. They held meetings with students. They just made themselves available to talk to LGBTQ students or just people who had questions about LGBTQ issues. Um, that organization was, was also really kind of important in my, in my own journey, certainly in being comfortable to eventually um, start up an LGBTQ student group. Uh, partly because uh, after that group came, Samford removed the ban they had on what they called homosexual acts from its student handbook. And they began, you know, adopting more, I guess, what you could call neutral language, just banning any kind of uh, sex between two people on campus, but not kind of singling out um, LGBTQ people or, or, or implying that LGBTQ people couldn't at least identify as LGBTQ or couldn't date someone of the same sex uh, on campus. So that group kind of left a, a mark on me and left a major impression on me that allowed me to start that LGBTQ student group I, I talked about. Um, uh, when I went out into the field, you know, I had this background, I had this set of experiences that obviously allowed me to relate to a lot of the students I, I talked to. I would tell them about my experiences and identity that wasn't a secret, uh, helped me build rapport with potential respondents. Um, so certainly I think a lot about my, my personal background kind of yeah, shaped my access to respondents and made me comfortable in the field. Um, you know, at the same time, like, you know, the LGBT community is, is highly diverse as well. So um, I'm a, you know, a white gay man, um, but I talked to, um, a wide range of people with a wide range of sexual and, and gender identities, um, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, um, different genders, certainly um, than my own. So I've always tried to also be kind of reflexive and to um, reflect on my own identity and the biases I might hold um, by virtue of just my, what sociologists might call my positionality. And, um, and not and not and try to the best extent possible not to um, allow those biases to kind of influence my research in a negative way, uh, and it made me extra sensitive to 
you know, trying to build rapport and, and trying to create a, a safe space for students who are even more marginalized identities than my own um, to open up and talk to me. Puts a burden on me as well, like uh, to try to get the word out about my research, to try to kind of use my findings to advocate for people, um, you know, particularly people who are in a more vulnerable position than I am. I'm very lucky now to be a professor at Oklahoma State University, to be in a, a privileged position, and I hope to use that position for uh, good and to, and and, uh, and to get the word out about uh, the plight of LGBTQ students at a lot of conservative Christian colleges and universities uh, to to try to create positive change for a lot of LGBTQ people. For sure, yeah. You know, I think something that's interesting about sociology as a field of study, right, is that, you know, unlike um, the hard sciences, you know, like chemistry or biology, for example, you know, you've got subject matter, you're studying it, you write your lab report, and that's it. You know, I think in sociology, you're studying human beings, so that makes it slightly harder, right? You know, you can't ever, you know, like distinguish, you know, like yourself from like the subject matter, you know, in, Absolutely. in any way, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think along those lines, I'd like to know a little bit about the lived experiences of LGBTQ students, you know, on campus, right, you know, on base of, you know, of like your research and all of that, right, because I'm sure that, you know, it's not just, you know, like a one time thing where, you know, you've got a club or an activist group and, you know, I feel like it's, you know, like every single day, you know, like every single minute even, I think your identity influences how you see the world and, you know, a lot of the things that happen to you. So I think along those lines, I'd like to know a little bit about, you know, like your own, you know, like research and stuff and like what you found along those lines. About the lived experience of LGBTQ students on Christian campuses. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, as, we talk, as we talked about, you know, I encountered a lot of people and of course my own research opened up to me about, you know, really discriminatory things that had happened to them on campuses. Uh, acts of hate and acts of violence, uh, vandalism that happened at times. Uh, but there's a, a much kind of broader body of research uh, beyond my own on LGBTQ students at Christian colleges and universities. Uh, I invite your listeners, for example, to check out the, the work of Joshua Wolf, uh, who has published studies about, you know, the, the um, effects of a non-affirming Christian environment on LGBTQ students, some of the mental health challenges that can create, some of the identity crises that can create. Uh, and in, in general, there's just a much broader body of research showing that, you know, particularly on campuses with kind of more conservative campus environments, LGBTQ studies might, LGBTQ students might even struggle in their academic performance, might be more likely to drop out, um, more likely to report depression, anxiety, even suicidal ideation. Uh, so that's all there. Um, but at the same time, part of what I try to do in this book and in my research is to, to talk about hope and to talk about students who have mobilized and taken very bold steps to create more affirming campuses. Um, and again, there are a lot of Christian colleges and universities that don't think to be a Christian means to discriminate or um, to, you know, be hostile toward people who are simply different than they are. But for them, being a Christian college university is creating a loving, accepting environment for everyone to thrive um, academically, personally, um, spiritually, if that's the case, um, that will welcome the doors to everyone. And um, there, there are just absolutely Christian colleges and universities that 
that have succeeded in creating welcoming spaces, sometimes establishing LGBTQ student centers, hiring dedicated staff to uh, try to foster a more welcoming and inclusive uh, campus. Uh, so it's not just a sad story, um, although there are a lot of sad stories out there about LGBTQ students at Christian colleges and universities, but there, there are just many stories of Christian colleges and universities that uh, in some cases are, are ahead of their times, um, have been opening their doors to LGBTQ students for uh, you know, decades in some cases now, and that have kind of challenged people's preconceptions about what it means to be a Christian university. Definitely, yeah. It's, it's interesting, I think, you know, because to sort of be in an environment where, you know, you have these two partially conflicting identities, right? Because, you know, you've grown up learning that, you know, homosexuality is wrong and that's not right. And then at the same, at the same time, if it's so integral to your identity, I don't feel like anyone should ever have to, you know, choose between, you know, like one or the other. So I think in that sense, a lot of the activist groups that you see, a lot of the support systems, you, you know, you have, I think it plays, you know, um, like a really important role, right? And um, yeah, I think, you know, that's about it from my end. We've sort of exhausted now. So thank you so much for, you know, coming on the show today. Um, it was a pleasure hosting you. Are there any closing comments you have? Any final thoughts? Well, thanks so much for again, again, for reaching out to me and uh, allowing me to talk about uh, my research. Uh, and again, for, re for your listeners who might be interested in more on this topic, um, I just wanted to mention there's an organization out there called the Religious Exemptions Accountability Project. Uh, you can go to their website um, at thereap.org and uh, download a report I talked about earlier that uh, just came out this year about the lived experience of LGBTQ students at Christian colleges and universities. But there's also um, you know, a lawsuit they've recently filed in courts to challenge the practices of more discriminatory Christian colleges and universities. Uh, there's a um, documentary project that's underway that's talked about on the website. Um, and um, there's some you know, different actions they recommend and uh, kind of allow people to take. So uh, yeah, I certainly want to give a plug to that organization because they've uh, they've been doing some important work to kind of make Christian colleges and universities and make higher education in general more welcoming um, and inclusive of LGBTQ students. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, really important. I'll, I'll definitely check out the website myself. Um, so yeah, that's about it from my end. Um, thank you so much for taking all the time. It was a pleasure speaking today. So. Thanks again. It was a pleasure to talk with you. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do consider subscribing and sharing it along. Apart from Anchor, which is our main hosting platform, you can catch us on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Republic, and Spotify. If you're on Twitter, then be sure to follow the handle ResearchDown for further updates or just to get in touch.